culture, society. On every street and around every bend lies a world positively overflowing with both. But sometimes we can all use a night in, removed from the endless spiral of chaos and absolute nonsense that waits outside our doors. And for those nights, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get your favorite drinks delivered to your door in under 60 minutes. All from the comfort of your couch. Because society is great, but it doesn't have your couch. And it's windy out. And you forgot your jacket. And oh my God, would you look at the line at that place? Are you serious? I... (sighs) So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. You're listening to Hashtag No Filter with Zach Peter. That's me, your naturally platinum blonde pop culture connoisseur. I'm the reality TV junkie, self-improvement addict, and host with only the hottest tea spilled fresh weekly. For more hot takes, go and give me a follow at Just Plain Zach. I always keep it funny and I always keep it cute. And if you're like me and you want to stay up to date with the latest reality tea, go and give us a follow at No Filter with Zach on the Instagram. Or you can always join our private Facebook group. The link is in the description below. And don't forget, this Thursday and every Thursday for the foreseeable future, Instagram Lives, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern on the Instagram at No Filter with Zach and on the YouTube. So you're going to want to tune in to that. All right, get ready because today's guest is everyone's favorite legal commentator. She's a former LA district attorney. So yes, she has credentials and she's one badass lawyer mentioning it all about the Girardi scandal on her hit podcast, The Emily Show. Please welcome Emily D. Baker. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here, Zach, and I'm happy to be here talking to housewives. I like talking housewives way too much. I mean, it's so juicy to not only watch the shows, because I went from like being the the consumer watching at home to now being like, I want to stay up to date with the tea and read the, the blogs and the reddits and the blind items. And and it's just fun. There's so much information about these. Sh- it's fascinating because I'm I'm old AF, but when you grew up watching shows, I mean, pre-reality TV, you just got what you got on the screen. But now it's like you can follow along this whole like behind the scenes and what's going on while they're filming and when they're filming and what their reunion looks are going to be. And you can follow it all on social media. It's fascinating to me what an immersive world it is. It's become like the Marvel Cinematic Universe with the Housewives. They've got their own. It's the Housewives really Cinematic is. Universe of everything. And it's it's fascinating to me. And I've also watched these shows most of them since season one. So like my my depth of housewife's knowledge has, I feel it vindicated. My husband's like, you've been watching these shows for like 11 years, 12 years. And I'm like, yes, I was preparing for this. I love it. I, I love just didn't it. know it. So a lot of people hate that I ask this question at the top of every interview, but I feel like it's so important to get the backstory. Can you very briefly just give me your like legal history, like your credentials and your interest in the Girardi cases? Absolutely. So I have been an attorney for over 15 years at this point. I was an LA County deputy district attorney for over 10 years. I did all the things from, you know, embezzlement trials and I had a weird tax trial once. So I've done all the kinds of laws, including, you know, murders, gangs, drugs, prostitutes, all the things. Um, I got ever so slightly burned out. And by that, I mean a whole lot burned out. I have a TED talk about it. And shifted into just working in civil and then just in consulting. Before I became a deputy district attorney, I was a research attorney for two civil judges uh, right in downtown in the courthouse where all the free Britney protesters are. That's the courthouse where I used to work. So I see it on TV and I'm like, oh, the memories, oh, the memories. But I, that was my kind of legal background. I've moved into legal commentary and consulting only because one, it's a lot more fun. B, it's a lot less stressful. And C, civil attorneys, I just, I don't love talking to other attorneys. I like talking to other legal commentators, but I don't love head to head with attorneys in my life 
has allowed me to shift and I love it. So now I help everyone understand the law behind the stories that we love. And I've never had more fun. My community of law nerds is growing by the day of people just wanting to understand the laws that govern our lives that nobody pulls the curtain back on. And that's the best part about doing all of this is people understand the laws as they're working and are starting to question them and saying, but why is this the way this is? Why does this work the way it does? Why do these financial records show this? How are rich people moving their money and, and keeping those tricks not such a secret anymore? So as a practicing lawyer in L.A. prior to, you know, being the the commentator, the legal commentator that you are now, were you familiar with Tom Girardi? I had never come across Tom Girardi. I have friends that had worked for Tom Girardi, and I know people that have worked at Girardi Keys. But no, I had never come across him. Um, I was aware of his reputation. You can't not be. What was um, his reputation? <laughs> Tom Look, in the in the inner circles, I'm sure it was different, but in the broader circles, he's the guy that's winning all the awards and he's the head of all the plaintiffs law stuff. And that's the t- area of law where he's representing individuals that have been harmed by something. And so I have, you know, acquaintances that are prevalent in that space as well. So you you know, but also the women in law, there's always this like, oh, he's one of those guys. <laughs> so he's one of those guys that's at the Jonathan Club and has the fancy parties and is really wheeling and dealing within that world. And the people who had worked at his firm always said, you know, he is very charming. He's charming to his clients. He has a personality where people want to trust him. And behind the scenes, that wasn't always the case. Mm. So yeah. had you heard shady stories of him prior to everything breaking? I had I had not. Um People are much more willing to talk about what they've seen now that everything's come to light. But Tom Girardi was also a pretty powerful political figure in California within the bar and within the various bar associations. And those bar associations are your connections for referrals, your connections for other um, types of work. And that becomes very important in those circles. And I think that's why you didn't see people really speaking up until really the judge in Illinois was like, oh, what is, no, we're not doing any of this and just put the smack down on all of it. Which needed to happen after so many years of like him getting away with so much. That's the part that like makes my head spin. Oh, it just, it makes me ragey. Um, It makes me so angry. There was an article in the Daily Breeze um, there in the South Bay because he had the carousel housing project case that really started to look at this a number of years back. And it just, that article never gained the traction. So when I went back with what we know now and looked at that, I was like, oh my God, they were calling this out years ago and saying, look, there's all these other lawsuits. The thing that really frustrates me about this, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it, is a lot of the lawsuits where he got sued by clients saying, hey, I never got all my money. A lot of them were um, closed, if you will, or settled because of statutes of limitations. So they were thrown out because the time had passed. And it feels to me, opinion, conspiracy speculation, very intentional. Now that we're seeing the Rui Gomez family talk about how this happened, where it's, we've got this big settlement. Let me help you management. I'm here for you. I've got you. You see these lottery winners, they lose all their money. I know how to manage money. And then you've got like the real housewives backing it up going, you know, buy their life on the show. Look at how wealthy they are. Look at what they have. Obviously they're good at managing money. We all know now that that's total bullshit, but look at it on the show. And he's telling people, I've got you, I've got you, I've got you. And they trust him. So with that, you're now seeing these past plaintiffs who it seems like got strung along long enough that when they finally put their foot down and sued him, the time had passed because he had strung them on for long enough. And that is infuriating to me because that feels very mindful and intentional because he's a smart enough attorney to know how long he needs to string people along till he's out of the woods. Yep. And that's why I think there are so many people questioning his medical status currently and whether or not he really does have Alzheimer's and dementia. In your opinion, do you think he has issues with his memory? I have a really, I have a really hard time commenting on medical because the stories that people in my community have shared about people who they love and care for that have had dementia or Alzheimer's who were able to function well enough to pass. um, I don't know. And I have skepticism, but I really don't know. I would very much like to see a 
greater medical evaluation in the conservatorship case. The state bar of California is asking for that. I think it's a really reasonable ask to say, hey, we'd like to see a more thorough medical evaluation here. I would like to see that too. But yeah, the timing is suspicious for sure. There was, so I was thinking the same thing. And here's a little a tidbit that I just discovered yesterday, actually, as we were shooting new cover art for the podcast. My photographer slash cameraman who I've worked for, worked with for like exclusively the past six years, he did another shoot of a different podcast that he filmed that was uh, right before everything really broke. And it was an interview that Tom Girardi gave with another podcast. And it was and it's dated October 24th and you yeah you listen to the interview and you see how sound of mind he appears to be that it does raise a lot of eyebrows whether or not this is one of his ploys like you said where you know he was leading a lot of these families on and he was very aware of statute of limitations and considering how bad this could go for him you know yeah. it wouldn't be too far fetched to think that this could be part of, you know, some trickery that he's trying to it play. It could be. And and the state bar raises those questions as well in their objection in the conservatorship. They listed out dates like, look, he was speaking on stage here. He was giving trainings here. He was signing documents here. And he was signing documents up until all of this broke, signing agreements with other law firms. Um, and so it the timing is is sus at best. And I think it's reasonable for the state bar to ask for a deeper medical evaluation here, because if he's trying to escape all of the liability with this, it's horrifying. If this is really happening to him, then it calls into question a lot of his other cases, whether he actually gave the clients who were um, agreeing to these large settlements, whether they actually were filled in on their whole rights, whether they actually were giving knowing consent to agree because clients agree to the settlements, not Tom Girardi. It's not his decision. It's his job to make sure they understand what rights they're giving up and what they're getting. And if he really has dementia, it calls in to question how much he was able to advise those clients, including the clients in the Lion Air case and others. So if he really has dementia, we need to know more because there's there's clients whose rights could have been affected by that, whose settlements could be affected by that. And if he's um, using this as a tactic, then that needs to be known as well because he shouldn't escape criminal liability and a state bar investigation through, you know, ruse, if you will. What do you think is going to happen to him? How do you think this is all going to play out in your own, with after doing your own legal analysis? <laughs> It's not going to go well. I mean, there's no way out of this. Will he ultimately end up sitting in a jail cell? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, given his age and given the stress that this is going to undergo, I don't know if we will see him ending up in jail. Will we see him losing the things that I think matter most to him, being his reputation? We're already seeing that. Like we've already seen the fall from grace. The, you know, the buildings are being renamed. The the awards are being taken down off the wall. And I think that's the some of the things that mattered most to him. He's going to lose the house that he's had for, you know, since before I was born, Lost it seems. His wife. <laughs> Hot wife. Like all all the things. Um so for him, I think the loss of reputation and the loss of legacy is going to be the thing that hurts him the most. But he's also pulling down, you know, his son-in-law is working with the firm and is under um, or is part of a lot of these cases. And some of them, the one in Illinois, most notable, the other lawyers are being looked into. He, he's pulling other people down. It's like the Titanic at this point. It's sucking everybody down with it as it sinks. And um, if they knew things, then that that's an appropriate thing. If they were in the dark, then then we'll see what happens. But how right. do I think this will go? I think this will take a long time. I think we will uncover more as they really dig into his books in the bankruptcy for the business and even the bankruptcy for the personal. And I think we're going to see that this whole life that we've been watching on TV was a house of cards built on other people's money. And that's just tragic, isn't it? So let's say he his reputation's ruined. He's probably not going to end up with much money. Um, let's say he gets away with everything, though, playing the dementia, Alzheimer's card, playing the mentally incapacitated. Once all of the cases are settled and everything seems to be done, would he then be free because he got away with it to be like, oh, I'm not as 
my memory isn't as impacted as, you know, we all once believed that it was. Like, could we see him walking around at Whole Foods freely? And would there be any sort of like legal ramifications being basically proving that he wasn't as in poor health as he led us to believe while the cases were active? Well, ultimately, it's going to be on the court because the court in the the conservatorship is the one that looks at the medical records and decides. And we're people are learning more about conservatorship than they've ever known before because of Brittany. So do I think that in his late 80s, he'll ever come out from that conservatorship? No. How restrictive will the conservatorship be? I'm not sure. So will we see him walking around Whole Foods? I don't know. There's rumblings. When his brother filed for the emergency conservatorship, there were rumblings of another hospitalization. We don't really know exactly what his health is like. So I don't think he's ever going to feel like he got away. He might escape criminal liability. He might escape prison, but he's not escaping the financial ramifications. And if it comes out later that there's money hidden somewhere, could they go back after that? Yes. And I think the bankruptcy trustees are not playing and that's their job. If I was a bankruptcy trustee, I'd be like, I, I'm a curious bitch. I want to know everything. I want to yeah. find, I would be tracking down those dollars like you would not believe. And I did um, a lot of fraud prosecutions and like high tech crime type of things that I really enjoyed the most as a DA. And so tracking down bank accounts and money was always something that I enjoyed doing in my prosecution work. And I can imagine that the bankruptcy trustee is like, we are going to find everything in this to get the people their money back that deserve their money back. They deserved it in the first place. It's theirs. What do you think happened to the money? It's, I don't know what the trigger event was, but he's been chasing, it looks like debt with cash all along. And I don't know if it was trying to, you know, keep buying himself out of trouble, these political donations and the Jonathan Club and the lifestyle. I don't know if it was just that or if there was a trigger event where the money didn't cover and then he kept pulling the new money to cover the old money and that just snowballed. I'm not sure what it was. Um, Do I think he has bundles of cash offshore? I don't know because the amount of loans that he had out were going to catch up eventually. It looks like he kept promising, hey, when I get this next score, you know, when I get this next case, then I'll pay you back keep bringing in that new money to pay off the old money just to string people on long enough. So where was all that money going? I don't know. Some of it was going to his divorce because he was paying $10,000 a month on that uh, from his previous wife. Some of it was obviously going to his lifestyle and maintaining his property. But that's not, I mean, he had billion dollar settlements that he's taking 30 or 40% on. Where does it all go? I don't know. I hope we find out. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, I want to know. I know. I mean, it would be crazy if it is hidden somewhere. And how do we I mean, like you said, there could be the opportunity where if we do find out the money is hidden somewhere, we could would the clients that like, let's say the, the bankruptcies all kind of close out and all the clients are paid with the assets that have been liquidated. If there is money that comes out that we find out was hidden later on, can they still go after that money? It would be hard to do. Um, so it really looks like he if could have this, if all they're set finding up. it afterwards, it would take proof that that's from afterwards. But again, at his age, it would be kind of easy to say, oh, this money just popped up. I think the speculation and the eyeballs in that will be on Erica and to see where money is coming in to her and what her lifestyle looks like going forward from this is where I think a lot of the attention will be. I think, um, if Tom Girardi survives this given age, that's always part of the equation, um, there will be eyes on him and what life looks like, but I imagine he will be in a facility and not in his home because he's under this conservatorship and right. he needs 24 hour care. So I imagine that's where they will have him living. It'll probably be bougie as hell, but I imagine that's where he will be living. Okay. So I want to transition over to Erica. Um, one, I want to know how guilty you think she is in all of this. And then I want to talk about this 600,000 that she's asking for in court. How complicit do you think she was throughout their marriage and her divorce now? And the divorce timing is interesting to me because the divorce timing came down right before that Edison PC 
uh, case hit in Illinois. So right before they filed it. And I, I wonder if she knew that was coming. And if she knew that was coming, that indicates she has some awareness of what's going on because the divorce filing came days before that. And then Edelson PC in Illinois was like, this divorce is a sham. They're using right. it to hide assets on and on. That is the place where they alleged that she had gotten a $20 million loan from his, her company, from his law firm and all of this, all of that came out in that Edelson uh, PC complaint. And those are all allegations, of course, because none of it's been proven in court. Now it's all paused or frozen or stayed because of the bankruptcy. So I don't know how much she knew. I have suspicions with the amount of lawsuits that were going on, but I also don't know how open their relationship was in that way. She seemed to be very involved in her music and it seemed like they would sit across the table and talk, but it was all, was he putting on the show? Like, was he being the charming lawyer that she met when she was a waitress? And he was just like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Here's the money. It spends, it spends. And we saw that with Teresa Judice, right? She was like, I should have known but I didn't question my husband. Is Erica young enough? I mean, she's scrappy, but if the money spends, is she questioning her husband? And we've seen her have a healthy respect for Tom, but also fly off the handle if people question Tom at all. Like her defense of him is, has been uh, very strong on the show when people have said anything about him or her son, but I don't know how much, I don't know how much she knew is it possible that all of this was going on behind the scenes? She's not on the house. She might not have known about the loans. Possible. Is it possible that Tom was like, these are just unhappy clients. This is part of the game. This is what happens. This is what it is. And she doesn't know. I can't imagine that his peers take her under the wing and are like, this isn't normal, girl. I can't, you know, I just don't imagine the community being embracing towards Erica Jane. Yeah, especially given his reputation and how much of a giant he was seen here in Los Angeles and in the legal world. Mm -hmm. I, my theory and I get shit for this all the time from people is that I think she didn't know much because if you look at, he never came to her, her show in Chicago. He never came to her Mm -hmm. book signings. You see them on camera together. They're not really close. They don't have much that they really talk about. I think she was the good housewife. She showed up for dinners when he needed arm candy. She would schmooze with the other lawyers or judges whenever he called her in. But as long as the bills were paid, as long as she was happy, she didn't need much from him. She didn't need to ask questions. And I think she just kept her head in the sand as long as the lifestyle was kept right, up. The money spent. And I, th- I think that she was a companion to Tom. Yeah. I think she enjoyed listening to him tell stories. And we saw all the ladies sitting there captivated when he's telling stories about old Hollywood because he was around for it. And you saw all the women just being very taken in and entertained by him. And I imagine that that's kind of what their life was like when they had time together, which doesn't seem like they spent a ton of time together. She seems very independent in that marriage and there's nothing wrong with that, but it goes to him maybe not telling her everything that's going on at the law firm. I mean, is Tom's daughter and son-in-law calling up Erica and being like, shit's weird right now. We're leaving the law firm because he did leave the law firm. Does Erica know any of that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, well, as a lawyer, let's say you have a really intense case that you're working on, or let's say you're in hot water I mean, are these conversations that you even come home? Can you even talk about the logistics of the the legal issues that you're facing? I mean, obviously, you should want to talk to that with your spouse. But I mean, <laughs> like, I it's just... such a great question, though. Um, so my husband's a doctor. I when I was a DA, there were times that he didn't want to know the cases I was working on because they were so freaking dark, yeah. uh, particularly when I was working in juvenile prosecution. So those conversations really did stay to my peer group uh, and my therapist because some of the cases are really awful. My husband's like, I love you. I just, I don't want to know the ins and outs of this case. And so there were times he did not want to know what was going on at work because some of the cases I handled were horrible. But there were a lot of times when I would talk about the stress of work, but there was also times when work is really stressful that you just want to come home and not think about it, not talk about it, not acknowledge that it exists. And you 
can live these two parts of your life where it's like work life is in this container and home life is in this container. And it's something I do talk about a bit in my TED talk about how that compartmentalizing of my life broke me because Mm. it didn't, it was not authentic to me to be like, okay, this is the little work bubble. We only talk about work with work people. And this is like trying to be social bubble, but there's all this other stuff going on. It did not work well for me. And I don't know if all attorneys are like that. I know my friends that are married to police officers that are DAs have a different experience because their spouses work very much in the exact same thing they're doing. Um, same with the couples that are both DAs. But even then, they can, there's times that my friends come home and they're like, how was your day? Shit. How was your day? Shit. Good. Let's get a drink and have some dinner. <laughs> and and it's just sometimes it's it's a heavy. Well, so I don't know how much... Um, You'll Those have conversations to consider how like old, like his like ego and how old he was in the sense that like you don't really come home and lay your your business to your wife that you are supporting because you're the big powerful Tom Girardi. I I get that. I mean, I, my speculation from watching the show is I really do get the sense that Erica had a lot of respect and reverence for her husband and was happy to be a supporting companion to him. But I don't get the sense that she would question him. Was it watch what happens live when she was talking about not having a prenup, but Tom's going to have it his way anyway? Yeah. I mean, you kind of see the dynamic in that statement, right? Of, of yeah, we don't have a prenup, but Tom's going to get get things the way he wants them. You you could see that from her. So I don't know how much she knew. I think that her behavior since this has all come out has been tone deaf. Yeah. And, and that's disappointing uh, for sure. Cause I really do like Erica. I've enjoyed watching her on the show. I enjoy her music and it's, it's like, that's taken away. Cause you can't listen to it's expensive to be me and not think about how that life was built yeah. now. And so it just hits different. So let's talk about the the Rui Gomez, the house, and the six hundred thousand that she's now, I guess, technically asking for. Can you explain Absolutely. what she's entitled to and how she's able to request that money? I guess it's through the divorce, correct? So no, it's through the bankruptcy court. So this is an objection in the bankruptcy court. And what's going on, there's two bankruptcies. There's a bankruptcy over the business, but the business isn't a separate business entity. So it's kind of weird anyway. So there's a bankruptcy with regard to the law firm and a bankruptcy with regard to Tom Girardi as an individual. In the individual bankruptcy, there is a compromise, a proposed compromise agreement or settlement agreement because the Rui Gomez family who got a $12 million judgment still has 11 million outstanding, got a lien on the house. And, um, you know, amongst other ways to secure that judgment that they are entitled to. So the trustee for the personal bankruptcy is like, look, this house is going to have to be sold. We agree that you get 80% of whatever we sell the house for to try to settle your claim against the lien of this house. And 20% goes to costs and fees. And they list it all out in their, their proposed settlement. So it's, we propose to settle it. These are the exceptions to the proposed settlement, the fees to bankruptcy, taxes, things like that, really kind of basic stuff. Well, Erica has come in and said, um, time out. I have a senior or a more superior or a first in line claim to the stuff that's going to be sold because I am the spouse. So she's asserting her claims as a spouse saying, well, we're not divorced yet. And that's all frozen because of bankruptcy. So I'm entitled to these exemptions that exist in the bankruptcy code and in the law saying you're entitled to this amount from the sale of property. You're entitled to these exemptions that don't go to creditors. They go to you essentially so that you can still live and still have somewhere to live. But her house might not be community property is the thing. So because she's not on the house, correct? She's not on the house from what we've seen uncovered. And the house is discussed in his previous divorce in the the late 80s. So he got that house in that divorce um, and paid off his ex. She's also now objected in the bankruptcy court. So we can talk about that in a second. But the house existed before Erica. So with him not putting her on it, it doesn't just become community property because she got married. And so I don't think the house is community property. Tom could have absurded these objections through his um, through his conservator, but they have not asserted these objections. So the court could say, you're not on the house. This isn't community property. You're not entitled to it. You're entitled to 
some of these things from sale of clothing or jewelry and things like that, that might be community property or, you know, yes, Tom's entitled to the exemption, but we find that that exemption is too much. So some of that's going to need to go back. So we'll see what the court does. The ex-wife has also objected saying, oh, wait, I get 10,000 a month Mm -hmm. until he dies um, or I die. So what you're not going to do is sell this house and not not pay me because there is this um, standing order for her spousal support, essentially. And that that spousal support order goes till either she dies or he dies. And so she was like, oh, by the way, your honor, (laughs) just so you know, uh, I'm owed money too. And so she also objected. And we might see other objections from other creditors saying, hey, we have a claim superior, but it's hard because this is a secured judgment. And the Rui Gomez family does come pretty top of the line in terms of how bankruptcy orders things because bankruptcy puts the debts in order and the secured debts and the non-secured debts and so on down the line. And I think people are going to have a hard time with that as we get into the nuts and bolts of how people get paid because the way things are going to get paid in bankruptcy and the way people feel about how things should get paid in bankruptcy are probably going to be a little different. So an exemption is is what necessarily it's like uh this is the cost this is my cost of living and this is what i'm entitled to as a result of being able to survive because these were my assets so these are statutory exemptions where the law says okay in bankruptcy we're going to sell everything except for these types of things primary residence there's a carve out for how much you can get if there was no if there was no money or value in the primary residence they might not sell it they might just exempt the property because there's more debt then there is value in it. So even if you sold it, nothing comes out. So there's these exemptions carved out that we realizing that somebody will still need to live after a bankruptcy. You're not going to take somebody down to zero. So you're going to still have these carve outs to leave them with some money to either restart or to maintain their life. And those are set by law. So those amounts are statutorily set. And we'll see what the judge does with it because normally it would be Tom Girardi making that claim for the exemptions, not um, not a spouse that's not listed on the bankruptcy for community property that I don't think is actually community property. Right. It just It's also just so out of touch that Erica and the ex-wife even want to come forward. Like considering now we realize who this man was and they were married to him and this is where this money, which technically isn't either of theirs, it's his, which technically isn't even his, like it just feels so detached and out of touch. Can you explain her role in the Chicago case and why she was brought into that, which is really kind of one of the ones that that hit the domino effect? The absolute I think that I think the Edelson PC case absolutely hit the domino effect. And I think what we're seeing with the exemption or the objections to this proposed settlement, what we're seeing is legal versus moral. And that's a conversation I have a lot in my content is it feels gross, but the law allows for it. And there's this PR strategy of there had to be a conversation with Erica's team. Like you're entitled to this, but do you really want to go there? Yeah. That had to be a conversation of the PR side of this because could she, could she have not? Yes, she could have not. Um, but she chose to go ahead and file that. So there is a kind of PR side of this versus a legal side. And we see that in other cases that play out in the media too. With the case in Illinois, Edelson PC is the law firm that worked with Tom Girardi on the Lion Air disaster plaintiffs and cases to settle those cases. Those cases got settled. Uh, Edelson PC went to the court and was like, by the way, um, they got paid. Our clients don't seem to have been paid. Nobody's giving us any information. We're super pissed about it. So could you just make it so that the clients get paid? We're supposed to get paid too, but could you just make the clients get paid? And they put all of the tea in their complaint, which is why I think it hit the news cycle, which I think was very, very intentional. So if you're going to play a PR game with lawsuits, Mm -hmm. putting all the information that people want to put in the newspapers or in the magazines or blogs or podcasts, I mean, I say put in the newspapers and all of us are like, we don't read papers anymore, but they put all that in the complaint and made these allegations. And one of the allegations being Erica and EJ creative got this $20 million loan from 
Girardi Keese. Now, do we know if that happened or do we know what evidence they have that that happened? No. It seems that all of Girardi Keese's bookkeeping was done by paper based on the person who examined it for the previous divorce. And that's insane to me as well. So will we see if there's really a, this $20 million loan? Yes, because if there is, the bankruptcy trustee will sue EJ Creative for that money because they'll she'll have to pay it back into the bankruptcy. So why is she looped in? Well, because it's alleged that her company received money and that money could have been money that should have gone to these clients. There's other suits that name her or her company as well, um, alleging that she's essentially getting funds that should have gone to the clients and trying to disgorge it or take it back from her and put it in the hands of where it needs to be. Also in the bankruptcy court, the trustee listed Erica as a co-debtor on a whole bunch of the debts in those financial documents. So she's just at the beginning of getting kind of pulled into all of this. And I think we'll see the bankruptcy trustee in the law firm case. If there is evidence of loans to her company, I think we'll see her getting sued inside of the bankruptcy because the bankruptcy now works as kind of the arena for all of this. And all those other things are going to play out inside of the bankruptcy, not in their own little parts of the world. And then my understanding of these payments being uh, written out as loans, which is how they're able to get them is because it's it was a loan that was given to her company that would ultimately at some point be assumed to have been paid back. But my understanding is the benefit of doing that was there's at like a tax break that you wouldn't have to pay by doing that, correct? There's tax, there's definitely tax benefits to loaning to loaning the money versus, I mean, gifting it at that amount, you're going to pay way more taxes on it. So yeah, if his business is loaning that money to her business, his business can kind of take it as a loss. And then as it gets paid back, be paid different on it. But also if his business, if his business, and this is all assumed because this is alleged in another lawsuit, but if his business loaned her business money, you can start to cycle the money back where if her business starts doing really well, her business can pay his business back with interest. And then it becomes beneficial to her business and his business. And it all goes to both of them at the end of the day anyway. And people are going to be like, Emily, why are you talking about money laundering? No, it's business. (laughs) And I know it feels like money laundering, but it's not money laundering because there's businesses involved. The crazy thing to me is that Tom's business wasn't actually like a business entity. EJ Creative is at least an LLC. So do you think that she will be charged criminally at some point? It depends on what they find to prove that she knew. So in the, and I'll juxtapose it to the Teresa Judice case all day long. In that case, Teresa's signing things. And the U.S. attorney was like, that's enough for us. You signed it, but it was fraud on the document. So you signing a document with fraudulent information is the thing. It's like, this has fraudulent information. We can prove it. And you signed it. You're done. What are the receipts that would that would incriminate her? Well, it depends on if there's, you know, business ledgers that have her on it with regard to the law firm. There's some indication that she was um, a secretary within or did some work within the law firm. If she was signing out money from the law firm, if there were employees that were like, no, I sat at this meeting and we talked about this and she was there. So it really just depends on what these investigations turn up direct. Um, funds from, you know, law firm to, to her business, bank transfers, things like that. And who knows what other conversations were had in the footage of the show that never made it on air. Cause you know, they're asking for all the footage. I was going to, I was going to say, is that something that they can even legally, if I was, if I was an assistant U S attorney and I was doing this criminal investigation, I would be asking Bravo for that footage of the two of them. And if I was the bankruptcy trustee, I would be asking Bravo for the footage. Not that Bravo's liable. It's just you have evidence that we know this is them talking. We know this is whether we can use that in court, we'll see, because there's always this argument like, oh, we were just playing, you know, we were playing for the cameras. This isn't actually true, but it at least gives you somewhere to start. And particularly when it comes to the jewelry, the cars, the house, the art, the footage within the house, I think, could be tremendously helpful to the bankruptcy trustee. I'm sure they've asked for that under subpoena. Is there any, so they can subpoena the footage and Bravo would have to turn it over? Well, Bravo could object to the subpoena. I don't know if they would. Um, I don't know if they would have an interest to do that. You can always object to a subpoena. But at the end of the day, I think they would end up turning over relevant footage of the house and so so on and so forth. Well, I can't yeah. imagine Bravo being like, 
Well, maybe they would. Maybe they're like, hey, we're protecting her. But at the end of the day, the court can order that turned over because it documents what's in the house. Yeah. And I think I think Bravo would because it would further play out what they would be able to to Mm -hmm. milk with this storyline on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I mean, it was the best thing that happened to New Jersey. And Beverly it was Hills absolutely been, the best thing that happened yeah. in New Jersey. <laughs> and Beverly Hills has been struggling for a, a while, a couple seasons that like, I think this will probably be their best season in a minute. I think this is going to be their most viewed season in a minute because people want to sure. see what Erica has to say. I think with Erica, because she's been fairly guarded, her whole character on Housewives has been super rich, a little icy cold. Um, but sometimes the voice of reason in a lot of the conversations. And so everybody's waiting. It feels to me waiting to get a little bit more personal with Erica season after season, like show us more, show us more, show us more. If she comes out in like a gray hoodie, like a YouTuber apology and is like, this has been so hard on me. It it will be iconic. I don't know if she will, but everybody's waiting to see what she's going to say. Is she going to say Tom's been struggling mentally and I've been alone in this marriage for 10 years. Who knows? We're going to see what she says, but I think that if she is extravagant over the top wealth in this season, it's not going to play well to audiences because at the end of the day, there are thousands of people. And I mean, in one of the cases, 8,000 plaintiffs still with ongoing cases that are still dealing with the fallout from everything that Tom has done. And even though she might not legally be culpable, I think in the view of the public, she's morally culpable, whether she knew or not. She's morally responsible for for living off of money that might not have been hers and her husband's to live off of. And she isn't bound to talk about any of this, right? There aren't any like NDAs or gag reels on any of the cases because she's like she's free to talk about it all, right? I love that you said gag reels. No, there's no gag orders at this point that we've seen, but I love that so much. That's iconic. Um, No, there's no orders to keep her quiet. It's always advised by everyone that if you are in a litigation, if you're in a lawsuit, that you literally stop talking about it Um, because you never know what you say might step you into a hole. So it's always advisable to just not say anything. And you'll hear lawyers say that all the time. Look, silence, people can say that you look like an asshole, but silence can't be used against you. If you talk on camera, it will come back up. So I imagine that she will talk about the divorce quite a lot and not about the case in Illinois, not about the bankruptcy other than vaguely, because those things can come back to bite her. Talking about the divorce really isn't going to be as um, full of pitfalls. And she's just going to have to be mindful what she talks about. Now, how much the other women will bring it up will be very interesting to see. Will they try to protect her privacy or will they run a be like, talk about it all? Let's let's talk about the husbands. Well, from what I hear from my sources close to production, Sutton, the other women are really standing behind her and supporting her and defending her. But Sutton seems to be the one that's really pushing to dig a little Sutton deeper. Sutton wants to know. Sutton wants to know. Sutton's earned her diamond. I can say that. Um, I love that. Put in the work, Sutton. She <laughs> Do has. It. Like at this point, like I mean, give a girl a diamond. <laughs> it's not like a thirsty Brandy Glanville. It's like she's actually delivering. Even though I think Brandy yeah. earned a bit of her spot with everything she's given to that show but i mean she thirsty she went there didn't she she really did so let's talk about the current clients that are waiting to receive their settlements how many of them are there at this point it's unknown i mean in one case alone there's eight thousand that are in the very large uh electrical fire disaster uh which i talked about on my podcast the Porter Ranch case. So that's 8,000 families in that large class action. But there are other cases as well. Um, And I've talked to current clients whose cases aren't even resolved yet. It's not just that they're not waiting for settlements. It's that their cases aren't done yet. Like there's no resolution. They're in the middle of the things they're going through. And the pandemic definitely put a wrench in all litigation in Los Angeles and elsewhere in the country because courts were shut. There's no jury trials going on. Things have been put off for years. And in criminal, it's slightly different. But in civil, it's like, um, we'll give you a court date in 2022 because we have other shit that we have to handle. Like there's no, we're not doing this right now Um, because there's just no 
juries aren't coming in. They're not doing jury trials. They're not doing jury trials by Zoom at this point. They might in the future. So there are still quite a lot of people who are now having to scramble and find other attorneys. But because of the bankruptcy stay, it's become very complicated because if there are clients who have had a case that's ongoing with Girardi, he does that on contingency, meaning he takes money after the case resolves, settles, or he wins. And if he doesn't, he's left holding the bag on how much he spent investigating the case. That's how contingency works. So if there is a client who is in the middle of all of that, the bankruptcy trustee is looking at that going right. But when this resolves, we get the attorney fees to go into the bankruptcy court to pay off these things. So if it's a 30% or 40% fee plus expenses, we get that back in bankruptcy. But a new lawyer taking that on to completion also needs to get paid for the work that they have to do for their back research. And so the attorneys that are trying to take on these cases have to come to an agreement with the bankruptcy court to essentially share fees and costs because the bankruptcy court's entitled to some of that because those are assets. The only assets left for the Girardi Keese firm are these existing cases that haven't resolved. But in the middle of all of that, there's people who are like, some shit happened to me that was horrible enough that I actually am suing over it. I've been harmed in some way. I've been hurt uh, or somebody has died under tragic circumstances enough that there's this lawsuit. And in the middle of it, my attorney is now vanished off the place of the planet with no notice to me is all over the media is in bankruptcy and his wife's a Fenty ambassador on, on Instagram. Like, I don't even know what to do with all of this. So the amount of stress they're going through trying to find an attorney that can represent them, who's willing to take this on and who's approved by the bankruptcy trustee is quite an undertaking for people who are already going through a tremendous amount of stress. And I imagine feeling like their trust is very much violated because I would be, I would be so angry and 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 feel stuck and, and powerless, which is how a lot of plaintiffs feel before they find an attorney in the first place. They feel powerless. Well, what came to mind initially, just thinking of like the Rui Gomez case is like, I mean, there are issues, there are not issues, but there are some settlements where, you know, you lose like the plane crash where you lose a loved one and then the money doesn't necessarily take care of your life, but it compensates for at least some of the damages that were done. But in the case of like Rui Gomez, someone is then injured and will need the money to to provide care for that person. That's where I think it's even more challenging because it's like now not only do they have to go through the stress of dealing with these cases, but then they also have to find another way to supplement that money to take care of their loved one that's still here. Yeah. And for the Rui Gomez case, I mean, there are there are tons of sad cases in this. This case has just gone on for so long where they got to the point, they won their case, they got their settlement. Tom was doling out their settlement and then it stopped. They asked for their full settlement and then had to sue him and then had to continue. They won that and then had to continue to pursue him because he wasn't paying the judgment. So they've had to continue to go and go and go and go. That family's had no um, no break from the tragedy that's happened to them because they've never had closure because it's never been resolved because they've never been able to just get their money and move on. And I can't imagine the the underlying stress of this hanging over your head. Litigation is tremendously stressful uh, for individuals. For lawyers, a lot of time it becomes a sport. And that's where you can see lawyers kind of dehumanizing people when they've been in it long enough. You're like, no, this is me fighting this other lawyer and, and doing this and that. But there's always a human component. And for the plaintiffs and even defendants, being in these cases is stressful. And going through protracted and continuous litigation is very draining. And from the civil litigations I've dealt with, you often get to a point where people are like, I'm just done. I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't even care anymore. I just don't want to do this anymore. And it's a conversation that definitely has to be had at the beginning of litigation, not just like you can get all this money, but also this is the toll that this can take if you're going to go this route. So that's definitely a consideration when people go into civil litigation, knowing it's going to, it's going to take a toll no matter what side of it you're on, it's very stressful. So when it comes to the divorce, is she now, I mean, could she, being that he is under, he has a conservator, does that make it easier for her to like get something out of this divorce? Or at this point, is it even worth trying to get anything out of him? 
Well, the divorce is stayed or frozen because yeah. of the bankruptcy. So by the time the bankruptcy is done, there, I don't think there will be any assets left to divide. And the court will just be like, um, there's no assets left to divide. You're divorced and just finish out the divorce. So when that will be, I don't know. The bankruptcy trustee in the law firm side of it said it's going to take them at least six months to put together the financials. And we saw the beginning of the financials in the personal side, but those are still also being looked into. So we saw the initial one and most of it said, you know, financial records still being reviewed and for a lot of the things. So this is not going to go fast. I don't think there will be any division of property because I don't think anything will be left after the bankruptcy. Um, whether the bankruptcy court will address the the community property in the divorce, um, they will sell everything because she's going to be you know, on the hook for it. So I think by the time we get out of the bankruptcy, there won't be anything left to divide and it'll just be a, okay, there's no assets and then grant the divorce. So what was even the benefit of her filing for the 600? For her filing to try to get the exemption, the exemption from the house? Yeah. I think that's trying to protect anything that might be left in this divorce. Also, if her litigation team, and this is, if her litigation team is anticipating that she's going to get sued by the bankruptcy trustee, it might just be trying to say, okay, well, this is the exempt amount of money that I'm entitled to, knowing that that money is going to end up going back Back into the bankruptcy as she swoops back in. And it might be as simple as her trying to not come out of pocket for that amount of money because she knows depending on what she knows and what her legal team knows, if they're anticipating that her company is going to get swooped into this, that's 600,000 if that's what is granted. And if it goes to her, which is a lot of ifs, because I don't think it's community property, but if it could very easily be, and then she personally turns around and gives that money or loans that money to her company, takes it as a loss on her books, and then the company pays that back into the bankruptcy. So it ends up just circling back around possibly but, with yeah, some tax but keeps her from being out of pocket. But keeps her from being out of pocket. And that might be that might be the benefit there, which might indicate she knows exactly what's coming her way down the road and can anticipate it some when her legal team was like, this money outweighs the PR hit that you're inevitably going to take by doing this because we can see what's coming down the road. And I'm sure her legal team has sat down and had very many, very long and honest conversations about what is this going to be? And if what they're looking at is that, yes, the bankruptcy trustee is likely going to sue her. Yes, she might be on the hook in the Illinois court. Then trying to get this money exempt makes sense litigation-wise, even though it doesn't make sense PR-wise, and it makes it worth taking the hit. I agree. I think that would that makes the most sense when you really that makes the most try sense to, to analyze. Yeah. Emily, thank you for calling in and chatting with me and answering all of my burning questions about this Girardi scandal. Where can people listen to your podcast and follow you on the Instagram or just social media? Absolutely. On social. I'm at the Emily D. Baker all over social, including the YouTubes and the Instagrams, occasionally on the TikToks and the Twitters. And then my podcast is The Emily Show, and that is released every Wednesday. This, you know, we've got, what, three episodes on the Girardi case, but we cover... Lots of other cases there and on my YouTube channel, breaking it down in very long conversations. <laughs> and you also, are you covering Brittany? I am covering Brittany. Yeah, oh, that's absolutely. Gonna... So we've got Brittany conversations. There's a number of videos on Brittany. I've covered the Taylor Swift cases. I like covering the pop culture cases. I've covered some of the YouTube drama. Uh, yeah, I've covered some of the other more serious stuff, but the pop culture is absolutely my favorite because they're the those people we all know the characters already we just want to talk about the lawsuits it's like real life reality tv it is absolutely (laughs) (laughs) thank you emily thank you guys for listening to hashtag no filter with zach peter that's me you can give me a follow at just plain zach don't forget to follow at no filter with zach to stay up to date with the latest show news join our private facebook group and get ready because there's a lot more tea to be spilled but make sure you leave me a five-star review because i'm a millennial i bleach my hair so i love that validation and i need you to validate me (laughs) all right guys i will talk to you next week bye